You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Auz Blahim Nishadan Rajim Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful. Welcome back to another breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam. You are joined by myself, Bashir, and uh, Shmail as well, and uh, we wish you a very good morning here from uh, the studios in Morden. Today we have a lot to cover, and we have three segments. Um, that we will be delving into uh, in a lot more detail after we go over the news. But just to pique your interest, uh, those segments are the realm of dreams. Is there any meaning? The emergence of chirality in nature, biological life and medicinal drugs, and also uh, how the homeless are coping uh, with the heat, the heat waves we are seeing at the moment. And we will also be talking about the weather seeing how things have changed um, uh, as we sort of leave summer now and head towards, um, you know, the autumn. So, uh, Brother Shamal, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good, alhamdulillah. Doing well, early morning today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, (laughs) It is very early morning as... uh, as is the norm here on the breakfast show, which runs from seven o'clock to nine o'clock. Uh, but to just to jump straight in with the weather. Uh, yeah. So this morning in London, we will see some patchy cloud with prolonged spells of sunshine. In the early afternoon, more cloud will build in from the west with a chance of the odd shower as well. This evening, dry conditions will remain with some clear spells as well. And throughout the night, thicker cloud will build in, but conditions should remain dry. Tomorrow morning, we'll start with rather cloudy skies and a risk of an isolated shower. But sunny breaks will soon start to widely develop dry and largely sunny uh, in the afternoon as well. And then the outlook for Thursday to Saturday. It will be dry to start on Thursday as well, uh, but cloud will build for most. Uh, Skies will largely clear in the afternoon the odd patch of cloud might linger in the evening. Friday will start with largely clear skies and just a few patches of cloud as well. It will be a dry day with plenty of sunshine. Saturday will see variable cloud cover and a risk of a few light showers. Um, So to look at the temperatures, today um, will peak at about 26 degrees. Uh, Tomorrow will be a bit more sunnier than today 
and uh, will reach 27 degrees Thursday, 24 degrees with a light shower of rain. Friday will be 26 degrees, uh, also sunny. Saturday and Sunday also uh, both 25 degrees and sunny as well. So for now, it seems like it is staying stable. Um, but I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Brother Shamal, but... Um, you know, uh, I feel like in the night you can sort of sense the cold creeping in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the amount I use my fan is reducing ever so yeah. slightly uh, day by day. And uh, I mean, just coming in today as well into the offices outside. I mean, a couple of puddles here and there. It wasn't raining, but you can see the the the, the residue of the rain uh, yeah. remains on the streets and the front gardens. And you can kind of you know smell the rain as well. Mm. I mean, coming back to that traditional British weather. I mean, yeah. those people who are complaining about the sun might not be complaining uh, very soon I might just be thinking back in hindsight that you know what I should have enjoyed mm. the sun a little bit more but you know coming back to the normal British weather that we used to yeah it's it's definitely creeping in as as the days go by and you know we are reaching the end of um, summer but um, there was an article I read um, quite a while ago um, off the top of my head about how you know this heat is supposed to last all the way till something like October or something mm-hmm. um, so Let's see. Let's see if that actually uh, comes through. I mean, we c- you could kind of see, you could kind of feel it though. Mm. In the sun, the 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 heat is reducing slightly, and we're not getting that same humidity. We're not getting that same, you know, intense heat. So um, I don't know if we if we hit if we reach it mm. until October, but um, let's see. We'll be quickly going over um, some aspects of the news. I think um, um, we are a little tight for time, so we will just be. Uh, picking off some topics today rather than reading the headlines. Um, to start off with, Brother Shamal, did you find anything that caught your eye? Uh, well, I've been um, you know, following the sports quite a bit, so mm. I, just, I guess uh, that's a good place to start. So um, over the weekend, uh, the Anthony Joshua fight, I don't know if you watched mm. that, uh, we fought Alexander Usyk mm. for the second time to try and reclaim his titles, but... He fell short again, and it was quite interesting to see the way he handled that loss. I mean, mm. um, after uh, after the it was announced that Usyk had won uh, by split decision, then you know he there's videos of uh, uh, Anthony Joshua like throwing the titles on the floor mm. and then just going on a bit of a run after with the microphone, just saying this, this, and that, saying that I'm heavy, He's trying to give mm. excuses. I don't know if he's trying to make himself feel better, but then the next day in the press conference. He was uh, brought to tears, mm. um, just uh, you know about about being disappointed in himself, which kind of shows you know that these 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 athletes, uh, these sports persons, they're human too, and mm. uh, they they handle loss. Um, they have to handle a public loss rather than you and I. Where mm. if we lose something, we kind of handle it privately within our family. But because they're in the public eye so much, uh, they handle it quite publicly. So he was brought to tears in a press conference, which kind of showed his humility, showed his desire. Mm. He said that he'll come back stronger. So, I mean, we could only see uh, whether he comes back, whether he can come back and challenge the titles in the future. Um, Apart from that, um, I was watching the United game yesterday. Mm. Um, As an Arsenal fan, I was enjoying their last... um, couple of games you know United being at the bottom <laughs> bottom of the league mm. but yesterday I I have to admit they did put in a very good performance uh, Eric Ten Hag uh, he's doing something right now yeah. uh, Ronaldo only came in the last five minutes or so um, it was a diff- different style different United it was a different United to see that we've seen in the recent future uh, in the recent um, 
uh, games in recent past. Um, but yeah, I mean, for like uh, above Liverpool now. Uh, but yeah, they will see. Only three games in, only game week three. So we'll see how this uh, pans out to the end of the league. Hmm. Yeah, talking about um, that Anthony Joshua fight, uh, just going back to that, it yep. was, um, yeah, um, if we can sympathise with his... Um, his uh, losses, of of course, um, it was a uh, it was a bit of uh, uh, it was very uh, sort of out there and sort of alarming the way the way he was reacting and um, uh, so on and so forth. But yeah. um, maybe in some some ways it's justified because you know at such a high level when you lose to someone twice, it's very hard to get. Um, you know the third rematch, especially yeah. for the belt. Definitely, um, and um, you know. This this is a bigger um, um, effect. On, uh, this will have a big effect on his career. You know, maybe he'll have to move weight, uh, change divisions, or mm-hmm. something like that. But also, it does go uh, go to show the competitive nature of the sport. Um, yeah. You know, uh, when a loss can affect you that much. But then again, um, on 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 the flip side, uh, there's the whole argument. Of course, you should retain your composure. And it was uh, Usyk's moment, and not not only for Usyk, but uh, all of Ukraine, um, who are going through a very tough time at the moment. And you know they need all the wins they can get. So I think it's more of a it's more of a factor that it was it was simply Ukraine's um, time to shine, uh, as is uh, instead of the UK. But in other combat news, uh, we have a new British uh, UFC welterweight champion, uh, Leon Rocky Edwards. Uh, Leon uh, won the fight against uh, long-reigning champion Kamara Usman, who uh, was uh, rated as pound for pound number one before this fight. And uh, all credit to Leon, who whose nickname is Rocky, because in true Rocky fashion, he came back after losing three rounds in a row and uh, ended it with a devastating head kick to uh, win the title. Um, if you, if anyone managed to watch that fight, you would see that Leon was pretty much getting dominated. There's five rounds in in a title belt, and out of uh, out of five of them, he was losing four of them, uh, apart from winning the first one uh, in quite a dominant fashion. So, um, all credit to um, Leon Edwards who won the title in w- with less than 50 seconds to go with that head kick. Um, uh, in devastating fashion, and um, all credit to um, himself from Birmingham. Uh, but we will be moving on to um, our first segment of the day um, straight away, which is the realm of dreams. And there is, and is there any meaning? So, of course, with dreams, dreams are very interesting and very mysterious because they're very hard to understand and. You know that there's not a lot of science to back um, what we know and what we don't know. Essentially, it's just a a lot of it's speculations and theories, and um, and you know since time immemorial, dreams have been considered a special means of communion, um, and also um, in religious terms, a, a special means of communion with the divine being. It is considered a means through which a person can be illuminated with the light of knowledge, righteousness, and truth. Dreams are a portal uh, to to an unknown world, and this concept forms the basis of a long-awaited 
Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's uh, comic book series, The Sandman. In the series, the king of dreams, Morpheus, rules over the uh, realm of dreaming and so begets many questions about the realities of dreams. Therefore, in this segment, we will be exploring the origins and meanings of dreams. And also, um, uh, as usual, we touch on the secular and religious side, so we will be looking at the emphasis of the significance of dreams in Islam as well. But, um, Brother Shamal, have you been uh, watching uh, this series called The Sandman? I know it's very popular now. Uh, not, not yet. I do, I do want to. I do want to come across it, but I just haven't had the time of day yet. Um, it does seem interesting, mm. uh, but uh, you're not yet. And I haven't been able to watch it yet. Yeah, uh, I did manage to catch about like half an episode. All oh, right, and uh, How's it? It, it seemed quite strange. It, it had a sort of a, um, sort of a medieval vibe, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, then also that dream, sort of a magic. I, I would say pretty much fantasy is yeah. how to sum it up. But yeah, I don't think I caught enough to formulate a proper opinion on it. But it, se- it seemed interesting uh, yeah. to give it to give it credit. Um, but you know uh, what is the scientific explanation of of dreams well dreams they're a universal experience when your brain is in a state of unconsciousness characterized by emotions during sleep uh, a strange thing about sleep is that it operates without receiving any new you know sort of sensory images it just kind of works by itself it's just you your brain is just functioning in a way causing you to you know visualize uh, these realities in a sense uh, the dreamer has reduced control over over their dreams um, and the reason we think that dreams are real is only because they have signals that go to the brain that are very similar um, to when we are in reality to when we are living our day-to-day lives and there's a there's a plethora of reasons why you know we may dream however no one is entirely certain uh, one school of thought believes that dreams have no real purpose or meaning whilst another believes that dreams are necessary for our mental and physical health and Coming to uh, you know the Holy Quran uh, in chapter twelve verse one hundred and two, Prophet Joseph, uh, on whom be peace, is recorded to have said, "O my Lord, Thou hast bestowed power upon me and taught me the interpretation of dreams. O Maker of the heavens and the, and the earth, Thou my, uh, Thou art my protector in this world and the hereafter. Let death come to me in a state of submission to Thy uh, to Thy will and join me to the righteous, and just." Just speaking on this, it shows that you know dreams, they are a religious thing. They mm. do coincide with um, with religiousness, with spirituality, with prophets, and and dreams are definitely uh, in religious talk that they are a way of communication that uh, Allah has used uh, mm. between His creation. Between his prophets, between his people, it could be anyone though. It, mm. could, it doesn't just have to be someone who is completely, you know, pure and uh, away from sin. Mm. Um, it could be any single person, um, and they can receive a dream. They can be a recipient of a true dream, a sign. Um, it could be information about you know someone is about to pass away or some good news is about to come. They mm. can receive that information through a dream, which is one proof. Of God Almighty existing because there's no other way to prove that there's no other way to say that you know oh I saw a dream which is going to, which signified or which which kind of uh, which 
interpreted was was interpreted that you know I'm going to go get this good news I'm going to receive this job or something and then later on they receive that job then you know there's no other explanation other than there is a god so mm-hmm. it's one way to prove the existence of god um we will be talking to our first guest of this segment in one professor uh, Tom Sternum um professor Tom Sternum works at the University of York he has been engaged in uh, philosophical research on dreaming for a decade. Since 2017, he has been working with uh, psychotherapists to improve therapeutic interventions for victims of trauma who suffer nightmares and flashbacks and helped found uh, a complex trauma institute in 2020. In 2019-2020, he ran uh, in a project in Ghana, Kenya and uh, Uganda on African perspectives and dreams and dreaming. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor Tom. Good morning. And good morning to yourself as well. And, you know, just to start uh, uh, things off, we are talking about the realm of dreams and is there any me- is there any meaning, is the, the title mm-hmm. segment. And could you please tell us about your experience running a project in Africa about African perspectives and dreams? Um, this is really, really interesting and enjoyable. Um, so... My, my own interests are very much about the cultural influences mm. on dreams and dreamings. And so I wanted to explore a different culture and different cultural approaches. And we ran a series of workshops in three different African countries, as you just mentioned, to try to um, get researchers in Africa to talk about African perspectives, African conceptions of dreaming. And it turns out there's a lot that's so very different from our Western, our European, um, our Global North understanding of dreaming, that it was really, really interesting. Um, I can give you a few examples if you want. Yeah, of course. So, so one of one of the things that struck me first was that um, dreaming isn't a personal thing in the same way in Africa. Mm. That you can dream on behalf of someone else. So. Um, one person might have a dream which contains a message for another person. Or you might, um, in your dream, be aware of other other people's, uh, well, their spirits, I'll come on to that, what their spirits are doing. And so mm-hmm. you've got this sense that your the dreamings aren't this, I mean, they're your own individual experience, but they aren't a private realm. The, the dream realm is much more a, a public and a social realm. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences. And then the other is about the spirits. Um, you can't really understand African perspectives on dreaming without understanding the African view of the relation between the human and their spirit. Um, I, I'll give you one example that really, mm. really struck me on this. Was um, in, in some... Uh, East African culture, if an unmarried woman dreams of getting married, um, that's actually a bad dream. So while in Western culture we might think of someone dreaming of getting married as possibly something exciting, as expressing their desire to get married, um, in in this culture um, it might mean that you are already married in the spirit world, that your spirit is married to another spirit. And this would inhibit your ability to get married in the real world. Mm. That's a very, very different way of thinking about dreams. Very interesting, yeah. And, uh, you know, what, um, 
you know, looking at this um, this uh, African backdrop, if you like, why are dreams often linked with uh, various contexts of reality around us? I mean, yeah, that that's a good question. So there are very different um, views about that. Lots of different views, um, but I think the the one that we can trace back through a lot of uh, histories and cultures is that your dreams are sensitive to actually the state of your body and where uh, during sleep. So if your body's uncomfortable, if you're disturbed during sleep, that's going to affect the nature of your dreaming. Um, I, I often say to people, uh, you must be able to hear in your sleep, otherwise alarm clocks wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Makes complete sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you are perceiving things in your sleep. You're perceiving things. You, you perceive temperature, light, noise, um, and these are going to affect your dreams, as are memories, recent memories, things you're worried about, things you're anxious about. All of those are going to, going to be contributors into uh, what comes out as a dream at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is the connection between philosophy and dreams i mean a lot of you know a lot of religions and a lot of you know maybe uh different places different you know sort of points of views they believe in dreams or may may not believe in dreams but there is definitely we see a definite link between like philosophy and spirituality and that kind of stuff so what kind of link is there between the two the philosophy and dreams yeah um there's lots of different views about that um i think in the western philosophical tradition it's become a very bad uh, relationship. It's an unhealthy one that philosophers aren't sufficiently curious about the nature of dreams. So, uh, actually, one of one of the things that inspires me as a philosopher about dreaming is a thought experiment um, that was conducted by an Islamic philosopher about 900 years ago, uh, Al Ghazali in mm. Baghdad, and he said, "Imagine you've never had a dream. So imagine that." It's just a completely alien idea to you. And you see someone asleep, and your companion says to you, "Um, that guy, that guy's sleeping there. He actually, for him, it feels like he's, I don't know, swimming in a clear blue sea under a warm sun. And you'd look at this guy asleep in a slightly grey, rainy day in Yorkshire, and you'd think, that doesn't make sense. How, How could someone who's asleep there, 60 miles from the sea, it's not sunny. How could they be be experiencing all that? So Al Ghazali is pointing to this idea that the dreaming is inherently puzzling. It's only because we all do it that we don't realise how surprising it is. And I think that's a really important insight for philosophers. Yep. Uh, that's very very interesting uh, Professor Tom it was a pleasure having you um, thank you so much for joining us today uh, good morning to you and have a lovely day great thank thanks, you. thanks for having me on thank you bye bye that was uh, Professor Tom Stoneham who works at the University of York he's been engaged in philosophical research on dreaming for a decade uh, since 2017 he has been working with psychotherapists to improve uh, therapeutic interventions for victims of trauma who suffer nightmares and flashbacks and helped uh, to uh, helped found a complex trauma institute in 2020 uh, so a very interesting conversation there um, uh, with uh, with uh, Professor Tom, um, you know, about the realm of dreams and uh, especially looking at uh, 
the African perspectives on dreams and how uh, a certain culture can influence um, your sort of dreams and the interpretation of them. Uh, obviously, we were, we, we, were, we were talking just before um, he joined us um, about the Islamic perspective of dreams um, and, you know, what interpretation that uh, accounts for. And also, uh, we were talking uh, uh, with Professor Tom about the African perspective. So, um, you know, with every culture, with every society, with every religion, everyone has a different interpretation of dreams and what they mean. Yep. And um, you know what they signify. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, one thing which uh, Professor Tom said, uh, he said about the African uh, spirit, spirit world. You have to understand the spirits, and he said that, uh, which is quite interesting. And I'll I'll bring it back to um, Islam and just our point of view of dreams as well in a second. He said that if someone dreams about, you know, if an unmarried person dreams about getting married, then that that's actually a bad dream. And uh, that just kind of reminded me of something which uh, which we also believe in as well, which we. Uh, which hold that when when you see a dream, a dream is specific to you. Two people can see the same dream, and uh, it can mean two completely different things. And it, there's there's countless examples of this in history. Uh, we see that there was once a queen, um, and she saw a dream. I can't remember exactly what what it was, but she saw a dream. But she was embarrassed of going to uh, someone who interprets dreams, so mm. she sent a worker. Um, she sent that worker to the person and the person who interprets dream he said to the worker that you didn't see this dream as in the, the worker said it on behalf of herself not mm. on behalf of the queen and then the interpreter said that you didn't see this it's not possible that you saw this dream mm. and then uh, whoever saw this dream send them to me and then I'll give you the interpretation and then the queen found out about this and then the queen went herself to get the dream interpreted which shows that you know two people can see the same dream mm. but it can mean two completely different things if someone is a king if someone is rich if someone is poor if someone is a child older you know has children it could be whatever your circumstances uh, different the same dreams can have different meanings for different people as well yeah and it's interesting to touch upon that um, and about how like perhaps you know some people can have collective dreams as well yep. see the same dream um, and and you know, it can um, show some proof of of something. For example, um, you know, just just looking at um, uh, just whatever. Perhaps uh, I don't know if you're thinking about a new uh, buying a new car, and then suddenly your wife or or your child sees a, sees the same dream or something like that. Um, well, maybe you can call it coincidence or not, but instances like that make uh, make you you know ponder a little bit more about definitely, definitely, stuff yeah. like that. We have been joined, though, by our next guest on this segment. Um, we are talking about the realm of dreams. Is there any meaning? We have been joined by Professor Matt Jones, uh, who is trained as a neuroscientist at the universities of Cambridge and Bristol, uh, the UK National Institute for Medical Research and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. In Bristol, he uh, uh, runs a, re a research team investigating how brain activity during uh, sleep supports memory and emotion and how these mechanisms are disrupted in psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. He's also the director of Bristol Neuroscience, a network of about 100 research groups using Neuroscience Society by studying mental health, memory movement, sleep and neural computation. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor Matt Jones. Good morning. Thanks very much for inviting me along. Uh, and thank you so much for coming as well. 
Um, just to start things off, um, we we are talking about uh, dreams, of course, and uh, uh, the first question would uh, fittingly be: what is what is the science behind dreams? Well, it's a, a fascinating question and quite a big one. Um, I mean, as you appreciate, dreams have captured the mm. imagination of humanity since, since the dawn of time, and I guess in in large part because they reflect our imaginations. Um, but they are very challenging to study scientifically, as you might imagine, because of their very nature, because they're very personal and subjective, and because they occur when we're sort of in a, in a subconscious state during sleep. It's very hard to apply the scientific method to studying dreams. But we have, we, you know, the field has made some progress, and I guess there are two broad questions. One is mechanism, what causes dreams, and the other is purpose, you know, do dreams have a function? I guess that's what you've been discussing primarily today. And on both those fronts, we're beginning to make some headway, beginning to understand which parts of the brain are active and maybe driving uh, dreams. And, and lots of studies relating uh, the nature of people's dreams to their um, uh, behavior during, during wake. Um, no definitive answers yet, I would say. But um, it's certainly a fascinating topic, particularly as it begins to link into, into the topic of, of mental health as well. Mm. And, you know, how, how do dreams have a strong connection with, um, you know, our memory and emotion? Well, I, I guess I think there are multiple processes at play here. One answer is that the brain regions that are active during dreaming appear to be those same brain regions that are important for encoding and storing our memories and our emotions. These are brain structures uh, such as the hippocampus and the amygdala. They're, they're evolutionarily quite old structures in the core of our brain networks that are active to varying extents during our brains, during our dreams, I apologize. Also, I guess the content of our dreams is, is made up of the contents of our memories. It's just that it's often fragmented and rearranged to form a kind of new narrative relative to the real experience. So I think the, the common circuitry and the fact that dreams are built up for the most part of things that are on our minds, what tie them to our memories and emotions. And I guess a good example, well, a slightly unpleasant example, is the, the phenomenon of, of so-called COVID dreams, you know, the fact that lots of people felt their dreams were changing during the pandemic um, because there was a kind of mass anxiety event mm. that was having an impact on the way that the amount that people dreams and, and the content of their dreams as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. You said at the beginning about, you know, studying dreams, uh, because of the nature of the dreams are very, very difficult to study scientifically. But we also see that, you know, a lot of people forget dreams. Like, what 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 is the reason for forgetting dreams and why does this occur? And how do we know if someone's dreamt something but can't remember it? Exactly. I mean, this is a, <laughs> a fantastic conundrum, isn't it? How yeah, do you yeah. Know if you didn't dream whether it, that just depends on whether you remembered it or not um, and, and so you know one example of the kind of scientific method a scientific approach to this is to bring people into a laboratory teach them some new information so show them a bunch of words or images that they haven't seen before for example then let them go to sleep and as they're dr drifting off to sleep you image their brain activity yep. and you try and decode from that brain activity whether they're dreaming about the stuff you just showed them and mm -hmm. there's a couple of studies that have attempted that with some success. I think that time will come. The time will come when we're able to record someone's brain activity whilst they're dreaming and then tell them what they're dreaming about. But whether or not they remember it 
depends on the state of the brain more globally during that dreaming event. And it seems that the brain structures that are normally engaged in encoding new information and consolidating that into our memories, into our knowledge base, are not interacting as they would during wake when we're in the dream state. So it seems like our brain is not in decoding, uh, sorry, it's not in encoding mode during, yeah. um, during sleep. Hence we, hence we often forget our dreams. But that, again, that's a very variable thing. Perhaps if you wake up a lot during the night and you happen to wake up just after a dream, then you're more likely to remember it and perhaps only fleetingly. And you know, if you're determined, perhaps you can train yourself to try and remember more by um, you know, laying in bed and rehearsing what you just dreamt about and, and mm. sort of cheating a bit, sort of converting that dream into into a waking memory. Mm. Yeah, and and just you know, it is a very very uh, fast, uh, a very very fast you know topic, a very fascinating. Um, just just finally, in, in some cases, nightmares can lead to you know health issues such as uh, by uh, being bipolar or schizophrenia. How does this happen? Or what is the cause for this? So again, it's a fascinating area. We have to be very careful though that there isn't evidence that nightmares cause mental health disorders. But there is an association between the two. So, um, you know, for example, a study that came out of Bristol in about um, 4,700 children, you know, based on surveys of their parents, found that children who had nightmares age about 12 were more likely to have psychotic-like experiences when they were a bit older, about age 18. That's not to say that nightmares were causing those psychotic experiences. More likely, there's a, a sort of common underlying mechanism that, that's driving the two. So um, there's also you know, a long-standing idea that perhaps you know, everyone's dreams, in, even in healthy people, are some reflection of a, a kind of altered psych psyche, if you like. It's also seen in mental health disorders. But again, there's lots of correlations, but no definitive evidence that one causes the other. Um, so, so we do have to be careful about that. But yeah. again, there's, there's, there's really a lot of work in this, in this field. And, I've been working recently with the Mental Trust, the big biomedical research funder in the UK. <clears throat> We've just published a report on sleep and mental health, which is on the welcome.org website. So for any listeners interested, I'd, I'd encourage you to go and have a read. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us today, giving us an insight. It's a very you know, fascinating topic. I mean, we could talk about it on hours and then it's so interesting. But um, we are running short on time, so we will have to move on to our next segment shortly. But thank you so much for joining us. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call if you want to join in on the discussion and just have your say. Um, we've been first. You talk about you know the realm of dreams. Is there any meaning? And it is a very very fascinating, very very fascinating subject. And we can talk about this on you know for very very long, uh, <laughs> for a very very long time. But you know, sure, uh, we do have. Um, you know, uh, more topics which we need to cover in today's show, Bashir. What is that? Um, I think just before we move on to our next segment, which will be exploring the emergence of chirality in nature, biological life, and medicinal drugs, we will wrap this segment up with a statement or perhaps a more of an answer to a question of uh, uh, if dreams can be the result of what a person does during the day uh, by the fourth caliph of uh, the Ahdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Darham. May Allah have mercy on his soul and we will listen to that now. That can be true. That is possible. 
dreams have been described by the Holy Quran as well as by Ahadrat sallallahu alayhi wa to belong to different categories. There are dream, false dreams shown by Satan to misguide people. There are dreams of one's th- own thinking, wishful or otherwise, of fear, of oppressions, psychological phenomena working from within. And there are dreams, of course, which are positively shown by Allah. So this is possible, that what you think you may see in dream. But uh, the scientists are working on this subject and uh, the science is getting more and more developed now. Previously they were just conjectures what dreams are. Now they have further uh, investigated and uh, broken some ground on this subject. And now we see that dreams are not just the imagination of the day. They are a very complex affair. In fact, uh, some psychologists who have worked on dream claim that uh, it is not possible for you to think of something and make it appear in your dream. It is not possible for you. The phenomena is totally involuntary. Whatever occurs to you, it may have happened during the day and may not have. But your wishfulness has no part to play in your dreams. That has been rejected by knowledgeable people. Yet they claim and they admit that what you say in the during the daytime may have its influence on your dreams or what you may have seen or witnessed or experienced even 40 years ago if you are that old. Even that can reappear in dreams. So that is very complex. But uh, still the machinery is provided to you for seeing dreams. That machinery can be fed from many directions and many different material can be fed into it. So that does not mean mean that uh, the direction of this machinery, heavenly words, is to be rejected. What the scientists say, what is bothering perhaps your mind is this, that because psychological factors are responsible for dreams, so we must reject the possibility of Allah revealing anybody a dream. This is a false way of approach. I mean, this is totally rejectable, this is insensible. No, no, this is nonsensical because a machine can be used by various operators. It can be used in various ways. If Allah created man with a purpose, with the ultimate aim to come into contact with him through various ways, it would be a very unwise Allah to have made that purpose and not provided man with that machinery. So if man is provided with that machinery and it is activated occasionally by other factors, that doesn't gainsay the possibility of Allah using that machinery. This is our uh, approach. <coughs> that was um, his uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahdi Muslim community. Uh, may Allah have mercy on his soul. Talking about um, if dreams can be the result of what a person does during the day. And that does wrap up our first segment of today, um, you know, which was the realm of dreams and their meaning. And we will be uh, moving swiftly forward to our next segment, which is exploring the emergence of chirality in nature, biological life and medicinal drugs. So um, what seems to be uh, just just as fascinating as a topic, but probably um, uh, w- uh, not uh, not as well known, um, because uh, as uh, chirality is uh, to to explain it simply or in a, in a in a way that <laughs> makes sense to me at least, is that um, you know both lemons and oranges constitute the exact same compound. Uh, limonene, yet yet they smell so different due to one of the molecules spinning to the right whilst the other one is spinning on the left side 
um, you know, which is quite crazy to think about that they're the same thing, but it's just the difference of spin in one direction creates oranges and lemons. Um, and, you know, the preference for a certain side or otherwise known as chirality can be found in nature and biological life. In 1848, uh, Lou Pasteur uh, first discovered chirality in the salt of tar- tartaric acid, where he was able to isolate two sets of crystals, each a mirror image of the other. Since then, thousands of chiral molecules have been discovered around the world, with chirality being found in amino acids, which create proteins, and even in medicinal drugs. Thalio um, might bring a prominent example. Um, but, uh, you know, Brother Shamal, what, what is uh, chirality's... Uh, examples in nature what where is it presented and you know is this common in biological life and drugs as well chirality is simply a geometric property which uh, dictates that the mirror transformation of an object is a non-identity operation i.e the object and its mirror image are non-superimposable by any translation or rotation uh, and numerous organic molecules such as glucose and the majority of biological amino acids are chiral and the DNA double helix always twists like a right-handed screw in its normal form. We have been joined by our first guest of this segment, which is um, you know exploring the emergence of chirality in nature, biological life and medicinal drugs. Uh, we have with us on the line Dr. Simon Cotton. Dr. Simon Cotton is, a honor, uh, is an honorary uh, senior lecturer in chemistry at the University of Birmingham. He has taught chemistry in schools for over 30 years, lectured widely in the UK and has done research on the chemistry of iron, uh, cobalt, uh, scandium and lanthanides. He has written seven books with Every Molecule Tells a Story, uh, uh, Molecules That Amaze Us, uh, Lanthanide and uh, Actinid uh, Chemistry, um, and these are uh, possibly the best known. In 2005, he shared the Royal Society of Chemistry's uh, Schools Education Award, and in 2014, he was awarded the British Empire Medal for Services to Chemistry. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Dr. Simon. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning to yourself as well. Um, we are talking about uh, the emergence of chirality in nature, and um, obviously this is uh, your field of expertise, so we would like to ask you, um, how is chirality fundamental to the pharmaceutical industry and in the manufacturing of medicinal drugs as well? Well, first, <clears throat> I would ask listeners to look at their hands. Got two hands, left hand, right hand. They're the same shape, same size, but they are not identical. They are mirror images of each other, which are not the same. Now, many organic molecules are handed, as you heard in the introduction. <clears throat> now, what that means is you've got two molecules with exactly the same atoms connected in the same sequence but they have different shapes in space. And that is due to what we call chirality, non-superimposable mirror images. And <clears throat> an example of what scientists call isomers. They've got the same melting and boiling points. They've got the same density. They've got the same solubilities in a solvent, like water or ethanol. But they can have different effects in the human body. 
If I can just give you one example of that, which you have heard, and that's a molecule called methamphetamine. Mm. Of course, you've heard of that. Mm. Yep. That has two forms. One of them is a very strong stimulant. It's got various names, like speed, and it's often not a good thing. The other form of methamphetamine is not a stimulant. It's a decongestant. Mm. Now, obviously, this property is important to the scientists who make medicinal molecules in the pharmaceutical industry because they will want to make one isomer of a molecule, the one form that has the medicinal properties that they want and not the other. So that is why chorality is important. And, you know, why do these differences in molecules occur? Um, and to um, talk in more detail about this, what is the distinction between the R and S forms of uh, the molecules? And if you could explain that as well. Okay. Molecules we're talking about are compounds containing carbon. Now, a carbon atom can form four chemical bonds. About the simplest carbon compound you can get is the molecule called methane in natural gas. Now, some of you listeners may remember from school that the formula of methane is CH4. One carbon atom, four hydrogen atoms joined together. Now, if a carbon atom has got four different atoms or groups of atoms bound to it, that's not like methane, but it's got four different atoms bound to it, this is what's sometimes called a chiral carbon atom. And that causes the molecule to have two mirror image forms. Now, as I said before, think of left hand and right hand. And you know that only your left hand will fit a left-handed glove perfectly. Mm. Now, many molecules found through the biological world, as you heard earlier, and that includes our bodies, a hundred molecules. Now, why does this matter? Well, our bodies have got receptors into which drug molecules fit. Think of plugging an electrical appliance into a socket. The plug and the socket have got to match up for it to work. Now, the receptors in our bodies are built up of amino acids. They make proteins. Amino acids are hundred molecules, like left hand and right hand, and so the receptors that drugs plug into are hundred. So that is why the different isomers of a medicinal molecule, a drug, may have different effects in the human body. Now you asked about R and S. Think of those as the labels. Our labels used to distinguish between the two mirror image forms of a handed molecule. They refer to their arrangement in space. They actually come from two Latin words. The Latin words rectus and sinister, which are the Latin words for right and left. Just think of R and S as labels that tells us which of the two isomers is which. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yep. 
<laughs> I mean, we're trying to follow as uh, the, the best we can. Uh, those people who are, you know, a bit better at chemistry, maybe able to, you know, understand a bit more. <laughs> but I'm um, just moving on to, you know, finally, just uh, very, very quickly on the last question. What is the effect uh, of uh, chirality upon smell and taste? I mean, we talked about a bit earlier about um, orange and lemon. They're very, very similar apart from the spinning yeah, of one I'll, molecule. I'll come to oranges and lemons in a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, can you just explain that? Yeah. What's the effect of chirality on smell and taste? Now, the receptors in our bodies for smell and taste are 100. So that means that the two mirror image forms for a molecule often have different smells or tastes. Now here's an everyday one. There's a molecule out there called aspartame. It's a well-known sweetener. But in fact, it has two mirror image forms. One tastes sweet and the other has no taste at all. So obviously, for a sweetener, you want the one that tastes sweet. Now, again, for any listeners who have done ALO chemistry, this may sound familiar. There's a molecule that goes by the name of carbone. That comes in two forms. One of them smells of spearmint. It's found in mints. It has an another form smells quite different it smells of caraway there are lots more examples but you know aspartame particular is an everyday one um different isomers of amino acids are different back in the 19th century someone looked at the amino acid called aspargine and that's found in asparagus that tastes bitter and some years later, someone found the other isomer found in a plant called vetch, and that tastes sweet. Okay, now let's go on to limonene. Uh, now, just uh, if you could, as, uh, 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 as uh, quickly as possible, we are fa uh, fast approaching the uh, 8 o'clock news. Um, so if you could just summarize for us, please. Okay, very, very quickly, natural molecules can come in two mirror image forms. That affects their shape. Mm. Shape affects how the molecules are recognized by our body's receptors. That can affect their taste and smell, but also, more importantly, that can affect their medicinal properties, whether they're helpful to us or potentially dangerous. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Si uh, uh, Dr. Simon Cotton, for joining us today and giving us such insightful information about this topic. Um, you know, we hope to see you at another uh, another time on another show where perhaps we can talk about um, this topic in uh, more detail. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope you all have a lovely day. Thank you so much, and yourself as well. Yes. Bye bye. So uh, that was Dr. Simon Cotton, and um, as stated before, we are reaching the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Are uh, laws of nature perfect? And if there are... Laws of nature are what? Are, are they perfect? And yes. if they are, yes. then 
Are you permitted to interfere with them? What? Are you? <laughs> can you interfere with them? Can you, you know, defy? You can't. Of you can't interfere with laws of nature without suffering the consequences. So that shows they are perfect. You can't interfere with the laws of nature without suffering the consequences. In fact, I have spoken on this subject during my uh, Dars-e-Quran in Ramadan-e-Sharif uh, on Surah Fatiha. There I discussed this subject in the light of some verses of Surah Fatiha in detail. The fact is that laws of nature are inviolable. And according to the Holy Quran, La tara alladhi khalaqa saba samawatin tibaqan ma tara fi khalqir rahmane min tafawud farjail basara hal tara min futur. That shows there is no contradiction, no loophole in the laws of nature. And try as much as you may, your, your observing sight would return to you defeated, totally frustrated. And you will not find a single loophole or any trace of contradiction in the laws of nature. That is exactly how it stands and this is according to the Quranic definition of perfection, what is found in the creation of Allah. So if you define perfection otherwise, well I don't know, then you will have first to define what perfection means. But this is the definition of perfection according to the Holy Quran. And this we do find in operation in the entire universe. So you violate the laws of nature and you are punished. You go along with them, in harmony with them, and you are rewarded. And you can never change this relationship. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. That was a short clip uh, from the fourth caliph uh, answering a question about the laws of nature. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Um, we will be continuing our second segment, which is the exploring the emergence of a chirality in nature, biological life, and medicinal drugs. But just remember, just remember to call us on 028-687-7878 for any questions, comments, or queries. That's 028-687-7878. Or uh, reach us on Twitter at Voice of Islam UK. That's at Voice of Islam UK. Moving on to our second caller of this segment, we have with us on the line Professor Lawrence Barron, who works on electric, magnetic and optical properties of molecules. Uh, his much cited book, Molecular Light, Scattered, uh, Scattering and Optical Activity, has contributed to the growing impact of chirality on many areas of modern science. He is currently em uh, Emeritus uh, Gardener Professor of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow and is Fellow of the Royal Society and the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He is awarded the Chirality Medal for 2011 by the Society Chimica Italiana. Um, Professor Lawrence Barron, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Wassalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, just you know, just getting into uh, into straight away the topic of chirality. In in the nineteen eighties, uh, you coined a new definition of chirality. Could you just explain that in layman's term and how your new definition is different uh, from its predecessor? Yes. Well, first of all, the word chirality was first introduced into science by Lord Kelvin around nineteen hundred with the definition I call any geometrical figure if its image in a plane mirror cannot be brought to, into coincidence with itself. Your left and right hands, for example, are mirror images of each other and cannot be 
superimposed, likewise a left and right-handed helix or screw thread. This definition is still used today in stereochemistry and it's fine for static systems like molecules, chiral molecules, but if motion is an essential ingredient in the source of chirality, we need to be more careful. My extended definition states, chirality is possessed by systems that exist in two distinguishable forms that are interconverted by mirror reflection but not by time reversal. Time reversal, it doesn't mean going backwards in time, it means motion reversal. You, you reverse the motions of, of all the uh, moving particles. Uh, the professor seems to have dropped out. Um, we will be continu continuing this interview, uh, God willing, um, if he is able to uh, phone back in. In the meantime, um, you know, we were talking about chirality and uh, the examples in nature uh, and uh, biological life as well. But to look at some verses of the Holy Quran, which, um, uh, you know, touch on this as well. In chapter 70, uh, verse 38 of the Holy Quran, it states, from the right hand and from the left in different parties. Um, we have been joined again uh, by Professor Lawrence Barron. Um, Professor Lawrence, um, you were in the middle of explaining um, you know, explaining chirality essentially. So, yeah. please, would you go ahead and continue with that? Right. So, my uh, definition, my extension of Lord Kelvin's definition of chirality was to bring in time reversal as well as mirror reflection. Mm. So, for example, a rotation coupled with a translation describes a net helical motion. Reversing both the sense of rotation and translation of a right-handed helical molecule, of a right-handed um, helical motion, doesn't change it into a left-handed helical motion. It remains right-handed. So it's truly chiral, and an important example is circularly polarized light. But another example is um, parallel electric and magnetic fields. They appear to generate chirality, for reasons too technical to elaborate here, mirror reflection generates an anti-parallel arrangement quite distinct from the original. But time reversal also generates the anti-parallel arrangement, so this system isn't truly chiral. We seem to have lost uh, Professor Lawrence again. Um, you know, hopefully we can, um, uh, if not, if uh, this uh, interview cannot continue, as today, maybe, um, God willing, we can continue with this interview another day or on another show. Um, but continuing on um, with, uh, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, what the Holy Quran has to say. Uh, in chapter 56, verse 92 of the Holy Quran, it says, Then peace be upon thee, who is from those who uh, on the right hand. And we see, uh, you know, these different verses referring to the right hand and the left hand. And, of course, as, uh, as our first guest on this segment was saying, uh, how similar it is uh, between the right hand and the left hand. But, you know, intrinsically, they're so different at the same time as well. And uh, the Holy Quran has made this di distinction as well. Um, I mean, in, in, the, in the Holy Quran, we always see that um, it doesn't. It doesn't tackle these sorts of, you know, these in-depth, 
you know, scientific discoveries to the dot. What the Quran does, it kind of gives a, a fundamental, like a basis on what this is. And you can, once we find out, you know, different discoveries about science, about chemistry, about molecules and particles, then we look back at the Quran and we see that there's certain verses that allude to that topic, which mm. show, which is, which is in itself is a miracle of the Holy Quran that these, uh, these very specific, these very uh, intricate, very minuscule little um, uh, parts of our world, parts of our reality, are actually mentioned in the Holy Quran. We can actually see some sort of reference to them mm. in these different verses and these verses do not just have one meaning it has several different meanings different interpretations um, but yeah I mean there is a lot of relation to science within the Holy Quran as well but it's, it's not a book of science you can say it's a book of you know spirituality and law and uh, religious law mm. but um, I mean there is a lot of science mentioned within it for uh, to prove its um, you know truthfulness and to you know, it's like a miracle within mm. itself. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get um, uh, Professor Lawrence back on the, uh, with a good line, um, so we will be moving on to our next guest. Um, and just before that, we do offer uh, uh, extend our apologies, and um, hopefully, we can have Professor Lawrence again uh, at another time. But uh, to move on to our next guest, Professor David Parker. Uh, Professor David Parker is a uh, professor of chemistry at Durham University who grew up in the northeast of England and graduated with a first in chemistry from Oxford in the summer of uh, 78 after uh, uh, DPhil with John M. Brown on mechanistic studies in asymmetric uh, catalysis. In October 1980, he took up a NATO fellowship to work with uh, Jean-Marie Len in uh, Strasbourg um and many more um many more uh, academic achievements uh have followed as well assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the breakfast show professor david good morning it's a pleasure to be here and good morning to yourself as well and uh, thank you so much for uh coming on the show uh, we are talking about chirality in nature um, and, you know, our first question to you would be, what, what is homochirality and how is it significant in biological and chemical spheres? Well, chirality is something we come across every day in our lives. And um, in the morning, for example, I sometimes help my grandson put his left shoe onto his left foot. Mm. And that idea of left and right handedness is something which we, we come across at an early age. So, you know, you have a left-handed glove, and it's only a left hand that will fit into it. We have um, left-handed golf clubs and right-handed golf clubs, and they have to be used by left and right-handed people. So, chirality is something we see all around us. And um, in the molecular world, in the science world, the world of chemistry, we work at the dimensions which are like a billion times smaller. And we come across molecules which also have this property of handedness we have left-handed molecules and right-handed molecules. So a couple of simple examples might be um, limonene, a little molecule, a small natural product. We find it in oranges and lemons. And it's the left-handed molecule which we detect in oranges and the right-handed molecule which we detect in lemons. And so they have this very different taste to us. Similarly, we might have another example like um, carbone, which is which is used to flavour spearmint, and the left-handed molecule again there gives us the spearmint flavour. The right-handed gives actually taste of caraway seeds, so it has a very different effect. 
And that idea of the handedness of a molecule having different action or reaction to us as humans is something which is very important in, in things like drugs. Um, drugs that we make, that we put into our body to treat disease or to help alleviate symptoms, the different chiral molecules, the different chirality, the different handedness of these systems has different effects in the body. So, for example, warfarin, which is a drug used to thin your blood, it's an anticoagulant. One enantiomer is nearly 10 times more effective at doing that than the other. And so, for a long time, chemists and biologists have appreciated the importance of chirality in our everyday world, if you like, and translated that into the world that I work with, which is the molecular world. And final example might just be in biology. We are made up, our proteins in our body are made up of small molecules called amino acids. And these also are predominantly molecules which have a certain handedness, they have a certain chirality, and they're all left-handed, the amino acids that we have. And whereas the sugars we have, are all right-handed. So glucose, a molecule that we eat every day, we need it as a common sugar and we look for carbohydrate sources for it, is a right-handed molecule. So chirality is everywhere. And so what, what actually causes this uh, right-handedness and left-handedness? What is it about the molecules that, that does this? It's their structure. It's mm. their molecular structure. So the arrangement of the atoms in the molecule in space is different. So if you, if you hold your left hand up to a mirror, you see a right-handed one. And similarly with molecules, they are the same in every sense, except they're distinguished by this, if you like, non-superimposability of their mirror image. And that's relating to their structure, the way they're connected, the atoms are connected together within the molecule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how are, how are new chiral systems identified and what sort of techniques are used to study them uh, to conduct further research to find out more about them? Well, that's a very important question and um, there are many different methods, but I think the one which is most appealing to your listeners would be um, the concept that light is chiral. So light is um, a wave, it's a form of energy, of course, we're all familiar with that. But polarized light is actually chiral. It's made up of the sum of a left and a right-handed circularly polarized component. So if you can visualize in your mind a spring, you can have a right-handed helical spring, and you can have a left-handed helical spring. And that's a sort of an analogy for the wave of light which we can imagine. So light itself is chiral. And that allows it to be used to study or to probe, to investigate other chiral systems like molecules because light interacts with molecules in different ways either in absorption mm. absorption of light or in the emission of light yep. when light is given out yep. so we use light is the simple answer to that predominantly and historically that's how chirality was discovered in molecular systems by the rotation of the plane of plane polarized light either to the right or to the left and people like Pasteur, working many years ago, and uh, colleagues in the 19th century, worked, worked um, these ideas out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Professor David Parker, thank you so much for joining us, giving us an insight. Uh, I mean, giving us more and more information about this, you know, very, very interesting, very uh, intricate topic. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Have a lovely rest of the day. My pleasure.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was Professor David Parker from Durham University, and uh, we are swiftly going to, uh, you know, just move on shortly to our next quarter. But we were talking a bit uh, before that, uh, before we spoke to this professor, that you know, in the Holy Quran, mm. it mentions uh, different different things, and you mentioned one verse, another two verses, which uh, you know, I mean, our listeners have heard quite a lot from our uh, the professors that we've been speaking to that. You know, right-handed, left-handed. Uh, in chapter 50, uh, 56 and verse 28, it says, uh, And as of those on the right hand, how lucky are those on the right hand? Whilst in uh, the same chapter, in verse 42, it says, But as as uh, as of for those of the left hand, how lucky are those on the left hand? So just, you know, uh, maybe that is a reference to this uh, chiral structure. Um, with us on the line, we have... Um, just before we do uh, go uh, on to our next guest, um, you know, we are uh, just going to talk about the different, um, you know, we've talked about so many things like uh, sort of uh, the left hand and the right hand and oranges and lemons. And um, we're going to talk about um, some different objects in uh, the real world, which uh, you may notice uh, are used um uh, with this chiral nature in mind for example golf clubs scissors um, I don't know if you've ever tried to use a left-handed scissors with your right hand but yeah I remember in primary school <laughs> you, uh, the the right-handed scissors were blue or red yeah. and the other ones were green and yellow I re- remember quite distinctly the mm. yellow uh, left-handed ones yeah. and um, you know there was only a couple people mm. but yeah and yeah there's uh, you know it's very difficult to use a left-handed one yeah it was, it was really interesting because uh, you you couldn't you could hardly like cut through it or cut through paper with uh, using a left handed uh, uh, I'm uh, right handed but using a left handed uh, pair of scissors mm-hmm. um, which is which is really interesting because uh, you know um, obviously the way it's been you wouldn't think it with a pair of scissors you would think just two pieces of metal just cl- closing right but yep. it's actually a little you know intricate bit of force applied and so on and so forth but you know other things such as shoes and corkscrews are example of chiral objects and um, you know just just previously uh, uh, our guest uh, Professor David Parker mentioned uh, corkscrews and how light has a uh, uh, chiral nature as well um, so it is possible to purchase scissors and golf clubs with either hand a right hand and a left pair of gloves and shoes are also available a baseball bat um, and a plain round ball pencil t-shirt and um, you know uh, uh, a nail used by a hammer are examples of chiral items that lack handedness um, an object, uh, an object symmetry, uh, and chirality are interconnected as well. We do have her. Uh, we do have uh, uh, our next guest for this segment uh, in uh, one, uh, Doctor Jess uh, Wade. Um, so, uh, we will be shortly uh, talking uh, to her about uh, the nature of chirality and. Um, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Dr. Jess Wade, uh, she is from Imperial College London, uh, is the Research Fellow Investigation Spin Selective Charge Transport through Chiral Systems in the Department of Materials. Uh, broadly speaking, her research considers new materials for uh, optoelectronic uh, devices with a focus on chiral organic semiconductors. And outside the lab, Jess is committed to improving diversity in science, both online and offline. And since the start of 2018, has written the Wikipedia 
biographies of women and people of color scientists every single day. Uh, Dr. Jess Wade, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you're having a lovely morning. And just uh, going straight into you know the physics and science behind it, could you briefly describe what chirality is and its importance in the world of physics? Yeah, I guess chirality is important in everything. It's actually a property of symmetry and shape that manifests across lots of different length scales in the human-made and the naturally occurring world. So chiral objects, the kind of perfect example are our hands. So our left and right hands are non-superimposable mirror images of each other. And that means that if you put them together palm to palm, then they're mirror images. But if you try to put them on top of each other, they're quite clearly not if you put one if you put them kind of face down on top of each other. Yep. And actually we see that in things like DNA and sugars and proteins and peptides and seashells and foodily pasta mm -hmm. but actually what's really really interesting is how um kind of chiral objects interact differently with other chiral objects so molecules smell very differently if they're the left or the right-handed version because our nose interacts with them differently or drugs can respond very differently in our body because our bodies have receptors that are also chiral so whether you have the left or right-handed form is really important and what we're trying to do at Imperial is manipulate chirality using molecules, but trying to manipulate the chirality of the light that they emit or the charges that they transport so that we can make more efficient technologies for a more sustainable future. Yep, yep, amazing. And what, what is the origin of chiroptical activity and what are some of the challenges towards enhancing this? Well, chiroptical activity really describes the kind of chiral plus the optical, so how twisted light can be. And twisted light is really, really interesting. We see it again in lots of the naturally occurring world, kind of when you look at galaxies spiraling around in the distant cosmos, they actually emit this twisted light. But what we're trying to do is make the molecules in your TV screen or your mobile phone display emit twisted light because that would mean that we can bypass certain filters and make your display much more bright and you'll kind of consume your battery a little bit when you're mm -hmm. outside, so make it much more efficient. Yep. So some of the challenges are just making that light as twisted as possible while still conserving all of the really great device properties of your material. Yep. yep. And how can chiral materials uh, be designed artificially on uh, nano and micro scales? That's a really good question. Actually, physicists like me rely on really clever chemists, like the ones in the stories that you've been <laughs> describing, yeah. to design molecules that can emit really twisted light or transport really spin polarized charges. So we use, for, for younger listeners listening, we actually rely a lot on people who can design these things firstly on a computer and yeah. then synthesize them in a lab. And then we, in physics and materials, put them into spin films and study their properties and devices. And just finally, um, could you could you explain what uh, chiral materials, are, what what their application would be um, in the future of technology? I think they'll be used. Well, at the moment, they're used in things like mobile phones and television displays just to make them more efficient. But what we're trying to use them for is in things like magnetic field detection or sending really efficient optical based communications, or in something like quantum computing and sensing. 
So there's a huge range of applications. It's kind of completely open to us as material scientists to design the best materials to fit that particular technology. Thank you so much, Dr. Jess, for uh, joining us on today's show. And uh, we wish you all the best with your research as well. Thank you so much and have a great day. And yourself as well. That was Dr. Jess Wade, um, who is an Imperial College Research Fellow investigating spin selective charge transport through uh, chiral systems in the Department of Materials. Broadly speaking, her research considers new materials for optoelectronic devices with a focus on chiral organic semiconductors. Uh, so we will be moving on to our final segment of today, which is the homeless in the heat. And, uh, you know, this is a very important topic um, um, to talk about, um, you know, since there have been so many heat waves and, um, you know, we uh, tend to think about ourselves, but we, we do not focus on, you know, the people who may be suffering the most, um, who, uh, you know, may not have, uh, you know, this the structure and shelter um, to avoid the heat. So we tend to think about rough sleepers in winter as well, but you know what about during summer heat waves, especially with homelessness uh, increasing amid the cost of living crisis, which is a whole different um, segment by itself. This segment we will be looking at raising awareness on homelessness, why it's happening, and how we can help it as well. Um, so there are some discussion points um, to talk about. Uh, we will go over them very briefly. Uh, since we will be uh, joined by our guests on this segment um, very soon. There are two factors that cause homelessness. There are internal factors, poverty, family, physical health issues, age, low education and skills, debt, abuse, addictions, slavery or human traf uh, trafficking, and etc. And also external factors, environment, geographical location, and the weak handling of the homeless. Uh, on a global scale, poverty is the most uh, significant root cause of homelessness. And this all results in a person not having a decent home to live in. So he chooses, uh, or he or she chooses to be on the streets. But, uh, Brother Shmael, there is a verse of the Holy Quran uh, which talks about this. Yep, uh, in chapter 2. Uh, verse 178 uh, the Almighty states it is not righteousness that you turn your face to the east or to the west but truly uh, but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels and the book and the prophets and spends his money for love of him Allah on the uh, on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and those who ask for charity and for ransoming the captives and who observes prayer and pays as a God and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one, and the patient in poverty and affliction, uh, afflictions and the steadfast in time of war. It is these who have proved truthful, and it is these who are the God-fearing. I mean, clearly talking about those people who are, who are stricken with poverty, stricken with homelessness, and, um, you know, are struggling with life, and Islam does, you know, aid towards that as well. We will be talking to our first guest of the segment, which is the homeless in the heat, uh, in one Petra Salva, who is the director of Rough Sleeping Migrants and Westminster Services at leading homelessness charity uh, St. Mungo's. Um, and, uh, and so we welcome you onto the, sh uh, onto the show, Petra. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, 
thank you so much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, uh, Petra. So, y- you know, we are talking about the homeless in the heat, um, sp- uh, you know, specifically with all these heat waves going on. Um, I think it's, uh, it's uh, the second heat wave we've just had um, this uh, this year. But um, how, how do you offer help and support to the homeless in general? Well, I mean, it's a good question about the heat. Because, you know, let's start with the basic fact that rough sleeping is harmful any time of the year. Mm. Yeah. The actual activity and the lifestyle and, you know, all the associated risks with sleeping out on the pavement is unhealthy. And the average age at death for someone who has this lifestyle is around 47. It's younger for a woman. So in any extreme condition, the risks increase. So in the winter, it's hypothermia and cold. And in the summer, it's, of course, um, heat stroke, dehydration and so on. So a lot of the people we work with on the streets day and night, 365 days of the year, is we're already dealing with people who are vulnerable. They're vulnerable because of um, their physical and mental health. They're vulnerable because of their trauma and lifestyle. So, So in the heat or any extreme weather, we have to be more diligent about people's um, health and you know and what they need so if people don't have capacity to help themselves or are really not aware of the risks our workers go out on the streets and what we do is we increase our welfare checks to make sure that people are aware of the risks we give out water we give out hats we try and take people off the streets ultimately you know ultimately the answer is people shouldn't sleep out <laughs> ultimately mm. the answer is people shouldn't have to be in that condition so so that's obviously the starting point but if there are not enough resources or we can't do that then the next thing we do is try and keep them as safe as possible um by you know increasing welfare checks and um you know making sure that people are in the shade supporting local authorities to design cooling centres. That may sound odd, but that's about a a way of getting people out of extreme heat. And I I think it's really important to to mention one thing because it really struck me this year. When my outreach team um, said to me that the people on central London were complaining of not being able to breathe because of the heat, that's a very dramatic thing to say, isn't Mm, it? Can you imagine? We can't breathe can you help us? We need to get off the street. Now, if you just imagine what that must be like, that is quite a shocking statement. Mm. Um, and we literally had people saying, you know, I, I, I need to get out of this. I need to get off the streets. I need to get out of this. And these are people also who perhaps typically have, have said no to help previously, have said, no, no, you know, I don't want to go into a hostel or mm-hmm. I'm, you know, for whatever reason have denied some help previously were now coming forward and saying actually yes I do because this has got you know this is this feels really life-threatening to me yeah yeah and I mean you, you said that the ultimate goal is to you know get everyone off the streets and get them into homes and get them protected and cared for and we do hope to see the day where you know homelessness is if not abolished very very tiny population um, out there and just just with you know you know the heat wave heatwave it causes you know a lot of problems and then because of the humidity it causes you know thunderstorms as well and it's a very very you know it's like a juxtaposition between the two um the two states of the weather and 
in terms of that, how do you adapt to it? How do you adapt from, you know, helping people from this heat wave and then you knowing the anticipate anticipating, you know, a thunderstorm coming straight after? Uh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think our approach is, like I said, that every it's risky uh, for people to be on the streets in the first place. And so we work closely with local authorities and, and um, across the country, and we, we get given alerts about extreme weather. So we're always on um, alert. Uh, we have relationships. Um, you know, with local authorities who tell us about the, the weather warnings and so on. So we adapt and we, we know already that our job is around about, you know, supporting people and saving lives as well as, um, you know, trying to get people um, into accommodation because ultimately that's what we do. You know, you, you know if, if we, we go up to somebody and they're lying on the pavement, we don't walk on by. We have to check um, that they're okay. And, um we put on extra resources where we can. So during extreme weather, we'll put on extra patrols. Um, we have a there's a facility across the country called Streetlink, where if your your listeners are concerned about someone on the street, they can call in, and um, by by um, giving us that intelligence, it means that we can direct resources accordingly. Um, you know, we would say though that if someone looks like they're in distress and they need medical attention, that's that's a that's a matter for the emergency services. But as a charity, what we do is we, you know, just we have to increase the resource. It's the same during COVID, during any extreme um, situation. We 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 try to pull together all our resources. Um, and you know some things have to stop because there are other things which are more important and and in in times of kind of extreme conditions that's what we do so we just turn our attention to maybe just focusing um, on the most vulnerable and uh, you know instead of doing maybe two shifts a day we'll do four or five or even six it really Mm -hmm. does depend on the situation I mean, that, that, that is amazing work and we do commend all your efforts and, uh, you know, you're striving to, you know, help, you know, with this issue, which is very, very, you know, very, very relevant and very, very common and, you know, is rising. But um, because you work so closely, you surely have an insight as what sort of different factors contribute to homelessness. So could you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there are so, so many. I mean, first and foremost, you know, access to good quality, affordable housing is obvious, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, accommodation, I mean, affordable accommodation. But let's let's turn to some of the common things that we're seeing at the moment. Um, you know, we are seeing more now, more people who are new to rough sleeping coming onto the street, right? And And that goes up and down through the years. But in the last quarter, for example, the number of new rough sleepers recorded was 23% higher than the same period last year. And the reason, and the most frequently cited reason for new new people um, leaving their last settled base was being evicted or asked to leave by the person they were staying with. So, so there's definitely pressures, you know, on people, pressures in terms of the cost of living, obviously pressures in terms of not no access to housing, or difficulties for people to get onto the housing, um, you know, ladder, um, or to just simply be able to survive in private rented sector accommodation. So, yeah. so clearly there is are those pressures. But we also work, um, you know, with people who leave institutions, okay, like prison, okay. And if you don't have the right wraparound support, 
coming out of institutions, then, you know, obviously the worst thing will happen is that you kind of spiral into this uh, difficult situation where you fall through the cracks in a system. And let's be honest, it's a system that often is broken, right? <laughs> because yeah. let's look around us. I don't know where all your listeners come from. I live in London. Yeah. And if you think about the wealth of this city and you look around us and you see, you know, the most extreme part of homelessness is people on the streets. You have to ask yourself, how is it that a, a, a city like ours or a country like ours can't support people into a place of safety? Yeah, and, definitely. And so it's, it's a complex issue, which is not just also about housing. It's also about trauma. It's about mental health, about substance issues. Mm. And that, that is something which is, you know, can be a it's, a, it's a different story for every person. But certainly our teams work with people who've got really difficult mental health issues and maybe don't have capacity to make the right choices or good choices for themselves. And they need organizations like ours and others to really work with them, build trust and to support them into a place of safety. And substance misuse, drugs and alcohol plays also a huge factor in this. There are so many people I've worked with. I've been doing this now for 30 years. I started my career working on the streets, walking the streets of London and, and, and literally talking to people living on the streets. Yeah. And so often people are so uh, um, so addicted to, to, to drugs and alcohol. It's very difficult for, for them to make the right choices. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, but that, the reasons for those are different and complex. And usually it's about trauma. But also, if you think about it, if you're living on the streets, you're going to be, you know, probably more likely to turn to drugs and alcohol just to make it bearable. Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. like it's it's a it's a very desperate, lonely place yeah, to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, Petra Salvo, thank you so much for joining us. We commend your work. We hope you, uh, you know, we pray that, you know, you do your efforts are affecting um, the homeless people and are you know making a, a positive change in the world we live in. Thank you so much for joining us and have a lovely day. Thank you so much. That was Doctor. Uh, that was Petra Salva, is a director of Rough Sleeping Migrants and Westminster Services, a leading homelessness charity, Saint Mungo's. Um, we will be moving directly on to our next guest of today. Uh, Rafa Ahmed uh, is the project manager of Fido Nido. Uh, she has been managing the charity for almost two years, including uh, across its nationwide branches in London, Birmingham, Manchester and Bradford. Uh, Rafa Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. Peace be upon you and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, just going straight on to the questions, speaking about homelessness and we were, we were specifically speaking about, you know, the heat wave and stuff, but just generally with, um, you know, many forced to choose between feeding themselves, i.e. risking homelessness or paying their rent, can you just shed some light on what you do to alleviate such situations and what are your ongoing projects? Of course. So, um, like you mentioned, I am the project manager for Feed and Nido. We're a non-profit uh, charity organisation, a project of UK CAB. So we run food banks across the nation. We're based in Birmingham um, and we just run food banks for vulnerable service users. Uh, free of charge so it doesn't really matter about your background or your circumstance as long as you're vulnerable and in need you can use our services um, and recently with you know the cost of living rising um, a lot of people a lot of our service users are coming to us and speaking to us about their worries and their struggles about having to choose between you know heating and eating a lot of um, 
individuals with young families and young children who they're struggling to provide for now. Um, so what we do is not only do we provide um, hot meals, food packages, food parcels, toiletries on a weekly basis, we also provide uh, workshops where individuals could come along and seek support from housing associations if they're struggling with housing, um, domestic abuse support as well from women's refuge centres that we work with. Um, so we are providing a lot of other services that can help individuals in you know difficult times who are struggling. And in terms of you know like the heat wave now and the weather changing, um, we are open to more um, family friendly activities because you know it's the summer holidays now. So we do have people coming into our community centres um, and you know enjoying our activities, whether it's arts and crafts, pottery, things like that, things to just kind of keep the young children engaged. And what was the intention behind uh, starting Fido Nido and what are its values and its vision as well? Yeah, so Fido Nido itself was started a long time ago back in uh, 2006 and then in 2018 we created Arabic Cafe in Birmingham. Uh, we're based in central Birmingham where people can come along to the cafe uh, free of charge for hot drinks and sandwiches and the whole point was to obviously you know feed and support people who are vulnerable and are struggling but it was also to create a safe environment where people can come inside you know in a warm environment interact with other people who are you know struggling with similar uh, challenges engage with our friends and staff in a more dignified manner and not just be you know given some food and tossed on the street you know we want to create a happy healthy safe environment for everyone so that was the main mission and you know our values are to you know eradicate food poverty and hunger across the nation and we hope to do that with um, more food banks that we're trying to launch. And you mentioned having more activities um, during the heat waves so naturally the question follows have you seen an increase in visitors during the heat waves uh, amidst the cost of living crisis as well? Of course we've seen I think since November really and um, when the first kind of cuts to universal credit were introduced, we've seen a huge spike in numbers. Um, I can talk for our Birmingham branch, which is our main branch. Mm. We've seen a 16% increase, um, and a lot of them are first-time service users who may never have even thought about using the food bank before. But now, you know, either they are being made redundant or they are employed, but, you know, not receiving enough to financially support their families. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely seen an increase in numbers. And just just finally, uh, before we let you go, is is there um, a sort of personal uh, relationship that is built between uh, people who are um, visiting and um, who who regularly attend as well? Yeah, of course. So we have a lot of regular service users who build a really good rapport with our staff and you know with other service users, and it's really nice to see how they can engage with each other. You know coming just for a catch-up and also help each other with different things whether it's um, housing or education support health support um, it's really all about word of mouth you know so because there's such a tight-knit community now within that um, area surrounding our distribution center a lot of people know each other fairly well from coming into our um, distribution center so they do build really good healthy relationships and even a good bond with our staff who help them, you know, every weekday, nine till six, you know, we're on hand to kind of support them with anything they need. 
Uh, Rafa, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today, uh, on today's show, and um, you know the work you're doing is um, is is amazing, and we uh, wish you all the best with it. Thank you. That was uh, Rafa Ahmed, um, the project manager for Fido Nido, who has been managing the charity for almost two years, including across its nationwide branches in London, Birmingham, Manchester and Bradford. And we thank her for her time. And we will be moving on to our last guest of the segment um, fairly shortly. Um, um, and our last guest is uh, Gemma Thapamore, who is a senior caseworker who has been working at Glassdoor for three years now. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the show, Gemma. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, just to get uh, things started off, we are talking about uh, this uh, topic uh, in particular, ho- the homeless in the heat. Um, but, of course, there's so many factors um, which are which are plaguing the nation right now, one of them being the cost of living crisis. So how has this, you know, affected um, not only the general population, but um, also um, the population of the homeless as well? Well, of course, the cost of living crisis is putting many more people at risk of homelessness. Mm. We already see the impact and the number of people coming to us at Glassdoor for help is actually rising. Um, according to Amnesty, one three people fear homelessness in the next five years. And these are huge figures of people who are thinking about something like homelessness. And it's definitely bringing to the forefront that it can happen to anybody. Um, I think in the past there was some stigma around homelessness, uh, what it meant to be homeless. But but actually, the cost of living crisis is really, as I said, bringing that into the forefront. Um, gas and electricity prices are disproportionately hitting poorer households, hmm. as they spend a much larger share of their total household spending on gas and electricity. So, you know, these are really big issues. And, you know, uh, just, uh, just as you mentioned there, it's um, hitting... Um, the po- uh, poorer population the hardest as as um, you know these uh, things tend to do um, you know one one reason for that may be uh, for example in houses poorer insulation uh, obviously when there's poorer insulation there's more heat loss and there's more uh, energy consumption um, so when when we have uh, better developed houses which is a totally different segment in itself um, okay. you know this can this can lead to um, positive uh, uh, net gain in energy as well but you know uh, keeping to the topic at hand uh, before I go off on a tangent um, you know having been a housing and community paralegal how can social housing play a role in eliminating rough sleeping and you know thus escaping from extreme weather conditions yeah of course I mean housing is one of the most important life components really because shelter safety warmth as well as providing a place to rest. You know, it really is a human right. But social housing needs to be part of the solution. But as you said, that's providing truly affordable housing. And it's about the quality of housing as well. Um, You know, that is, you know, really, really, really important because it's a human right to have access to housing, but to adequate homes. 
So in England, decent home standards are in place, but only one in 10 of social rent homes, you know, actually make that, which is which is terrible. So, you know, it's it, it, social housing is important, but we're talking about the quality of that housing, um, people actually having access to it as well, because of the lack of social housing, local authorities have to ration their social housing by restricting who can actually qualify to go onto their waiting list. Um, and in the big issue it revealed last month that at least 30,000 people in England have been on social housing waiting list for 10 years or more. So social housing and an increase of social housing will definitely play a role in helping eliminate rough sleeping um, and but again, it's not just about having the numbers there. It's about having the quality of housing. So that, you know, as you said before about insulation, things like that, that's all been taken into consideration to have good and affordable social housing. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the figures you mentioned they are quite, uh, quite you know, m- mind blowing, and you know, yeah. certainly something should be done uh, about that, about the current state of that. But just moving on, what are some of the strengths and uh, weaknesses of the current homelessness legislation in England? So um, the Homelessness Reduction Act of 2017, which came actually into effect in April 2018. So that represented some of the most fundamental changes to homelessness legislation in England. And that had been in the past like 40 years. So it had transformed the help that councils were required to give to people facing homelessness. So more people became eligible to receive support from home with their homelessness from the council. However, some people are still not eligible to receive the help they need. So at Glassdoor, we ensure that everyone has access to the help they need, no matter who they are or where they're from. But, you know, there are some things that are being in process of reform. So Section 21, no-fault evictions are being banned. There should be no discrimination in the private rented sector against people on benefit, those who are non-UK citizens and those who have children. But people need to know their rights and should are able to complain when they are not met. And they should complain if they're getting poor conditions of living. But again, this is, whilst it's coming into reform, it's not not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, and just coming on to a more a more sort of current issue with the, with the heat wave, um, of we often see that you know with the heat wave because it affects every single person personally and as in them as individuals, we often you know we only care about ourselves and we don't really think about what you know effects it's having on other people. So what can we do to help? you know, the homeless during this extreme summer weather and how can, you know, just for the benefit of our listeners and us as well, like how can we always remember to, you know, just to do something and not just um, think about ourselves in those uh, situations? No, of course. Well, when you when you don't have a home, a heat wave can be really, really dangerous. Yeah, it's harder to shelter yeah. from the sun, harder to find shade. But there are loads of small ways to help people. Um, experience homelessness during a week's heat wave. So small things like if you feel safe to do so, stop and say hello. You can offer someone a bottle of water. 
if you've got a frozen bottle, that's even better. Um, offer someone an umbrella to protect yeah. them from the sun. Um, sun hat to prevent from you know the sun and the heat stroke. Uh, offering a bottle of sun cream. Uh, if you have any spare sunglasses at home, uh, you can offer them someone who needs them. Um, and just being aware of local services that can help. So you can go to our glass store website, um, get a flyer, give that to them, um, and, and little things like that. But if you are concerned for someone's welfare, you can also alert Streetlink, um, which has an app, or you can call 0300 500 0914. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Gemma Tapamu, for joining us today. Uh, we commend the work you're doing. We hope you wish you the very best in your efforts to you know, reduce uh, this issue, which we are seeing on a day-to-day basis. Thank you so much for joining us and have a lovely day. Thank you for having me. That was uh, Gemma Thapamo, for, uh, uh, he gave us an insight a bit about uh, homelessness in the UK, as did our other uh, callers uh, of today's segment. Um, she's just coming back to, you know, the is- Islamic perspective mm. on this uh, on this issue. Homelessness, you know, it's not something which we've just seen today. We, it's, it's been there since the beginning. There's always people that are stricken with poverty, always people mm. that are, you know, struggle to find jobs, struggles to to provide for their family and stuff and I just want to come back to the Islamic perspective and just say that there's two main things in Islam which we see which is uh, the rights of Allah and the rights of mankind mm. which we mention a lot on the show uh, on Drive Time Show and the Breakfast Show and just Voice of Islam in general the, the rights of Allah and the rights of mankind and just coming towards the rights of mankind that is that is the creation of Allah the Almighty to help them to give them their due rights, to provide for them, to help them, to help your brothers, to help your neighbors, to help your sisters, to help any single person that is in need. Islam is based around, these are one of the things which Islam is based around, about, you know, not just being selfish and not just striving by yourself. It says, to, you know, to strive along with, um, uh, along your, your along your fellow companions, your fellow your neighbors, any single person around you, and not just Muslims, not just help Muslims, help every single person in need. Um, in the Quran, it says that anyone, you know, uh, to to protect not just mosques, to protect synagogues, churches, temples, and all these other places of worship where people go to worship the who they believe is a creator, and to provide them protection. Uh, we see in the life of the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he was very charitable he would always help the poor he would always help those people in need he would always help he ab- abolished slavery in Arabia which was a very difficult task and not just abolished slavery and homelessness he liberated these people he liberated them he said to you know and uh, 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 the Almighty states in the Holy Quran as well to you know to give to those people who do not ask for help who do not have the capacity to ask for help and to give to the people who have the capacity to help so those people who are in the streets are are, are essentially begging for money because they need to live because they want to live and there are some people who do not even have the capacity to do this uh, Islam you know highlights the fact that you should help them too and reiterates the facts and not just it's every single part of your life you know remembering Allah the Almighty and by following these rights of mankind by helping other people you are essentially following the rights of Allah the Almighty because he is the one who has prescribed this um, 
for us and within uh, uh, um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community we have you know uh, different uh, different schemes we have the Humanity First a non-profit uh, charity uh, uh, that helps so many people across the globe people in need people who are stricken with um, po- poverty and those people who you know crisis and natural disasters and all that sort of sort of things building schools and houses across the across poorer places and helping people in times of need I mean the Ahmadiyya Muslim community does uh, you know try to be the first people there to help people in need and uh, in sh- uh, God willing inshallah we will see in the future uh, these uh, schemes to help uh, uh, you know low income families and the homeless to uh, uh, to, to continue these schemes um, and essentially um, see uh, an in- increase in their welfare and well-being as well you know we have talked so, uh, so much uh, about um, you know, homelessness in general and the heat wave. Perhaps we have not touched so much on the cost of living crisis. And, um, you know, to touch upon that very quickly, is caused by low wages, rising rents, and a lack of affordable housing. And one of the factors that causes this to happen is the lack of social housing and the high rents that make them unable to pay for their rented houses and increasing household needs. We are, are fast approaching the end of today's show. Um, it's been wonderful to have all our guests and we thank our researchers, producers, tech teams and yourself, Brother Shamil as well, for joining myself. It's been a pleasure. And from the Voice of Islam Studios, here's the news.